This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about how rapids form in a river and how the terms eddy fence, standing wave, haystack, tail wave, and gradient all fit together. Do you have a favorite rapid in the Grand Canyon? Oh, you know, if you ask me right now, I'll tell you something. If you ask me tomorrow, I'll tell you something <laughs> totally different. Uh, I guess the most honest answer I could give you is, you know, whatever rapid I'm running at the time. That's Monty Tillinghast, who has been rowing down the Grand Canyon section of the Colorado River since the early 1970s. Today we are talking about the three main ways rapids form, gradient, obstruction, and constriction. We start off the conversation with a more general discussion on the concept of an eddy. I guess there's a few ways to go about discussing it. One would be mathematically, and I think when you do that, you put people to sleep. I'm going to choose a way to describe it when I'm uh, on a boat with uh, other passengers. Simply put, it's just an area in a river where water is actually traveling the opposite direction in which the current you're floating in is headed. So as far as how stuff like that gets created, just visualize, for the sake of this discussion, I'll just say that, you know, when you compare uh, a liquid to a gas, you're not going to compress a liquid. At any rate, uh, as you're moving down the river, picture some areas where uh, maybe like a set of stair steps. You know, the Colorado, for the most part, unless you get up into the mountainous regions where you have much deeper grades and uh, the river's in its infancy stage, uh, I would say, uh, you know, this is kind of a pool and drop situation meaning you have a rapid uh, and then below it you have a pool and the current continues on. At any rate, uh, going back to uh, what creates an eddy, think of it this way. Again, going back to these stair steps, well, uh, where the river drops, current is going to speed up. Sooner or later, you're going to encounter an area where the grade dwindles. How much? Well, uh, enough to slow the current down. When you have this water that's moving down a steeper grade, it's going to gain speed. As it does, it'll sooner or later encounter an area that doesn't have as much speed. And so now you've got a situation where faster water is pushing into slower water. As a result, something's got to give. And like I said, you're not going to compress a fluid when compared to a gas. So something in the form of hydraulics has to happen here. And simply put, the faster water merely pushes the slower water out of its way. And that water that's being pushed out of the way has to go somewhere. And so uh, as a result, it will head back upstream, either on the right or left-hand side of the current that you're in, or both sides in some cases. Think of this as uh, nothing more than an energy uh, dissipation mechanism. You've got this water with this kinetic energy built up, and then you encounter water in front of uh, the current that you're on that has uh, less or no kinetic energy. In either case, like I said, it pushes itself out of the way. So um, this results in an eddy. And you'll uh, notice what separates between the current going upstream versus the current going downstream is a line known as an eddy fence. And so it's just a sheer line where uh, the water is changing direction. I would say you can't just visualize this on a horizontal scale. It's probably easiest to start with to do that, but you got to remember that these shear lines can, can, can happen and do happen in a three-dimensional world, not just a unidimensional uh, world. And so you get these upwellings that occur, these boils, et cetera, that can happen as a result of this action as well. And so 
as you're moving across the river, you might see a boil, and it's just the convergence of water going different directions. Okay, so how how does the creation of these eddies uh, relate to the gradient of the river, and then to the to the rapids, to the waves? You know, if you look at any river system, there's not a consistent grade. When you travel down a river, there may be some areas that uh, you have a steeper grade. And as you look at the shore, as you proceed down the river, you'll find that you're moving faster. You know, if you're in a boat, uh, just kind of observe. When you encounter an area that has maybe not as much of a grade as previous, then you would look at the shore and notice uh, that you're moving a little slower. You got to remember that the steeper the grade, the faster water is going to move. I mean, there, there's a relationship there. So, you know, if you take this idea and go a little bit further with it, then if you steepen the grade, there's going to be a point where this water not doing much in front of uh, water that's moving faster, there's going to be a point where something has to give there. In other words, an eddy is going to be no longer sufficient to dissipate the amount of energy built up. And so uh, as a result, something else has to happen. And what results is uh, what some people refer to as a haystack. Some people call it a hydraulic. You know, some people call it a standing wave. There are different names for it. But, you know, one of the things you're really interested in knowing if you're wanting to plot wave height is the differential. In other words, the water that's been on a grade that is steeper than the water that hasn't been uh, that's in front. And so uh, the difference between this faster water versus the slow water can be used to mathematically plot wave height. So in other words, the point I'm trying to make is this water moving down this grade encounters slower water in front. It explodes upward until gravity basically says you can't go any higher. And at that point, you know, water is about eight pounds a gallon. So when you pile a bunch of that up, then there's going to be a point where gravity, like I said, says no more. At that point, this water will uh, start falling down the backside of the wave, and it will continue to do so until, uh, and it will continue below the river level until it uh, creates a trough, and at that point, rebounds back upward. And uh, this oscillation continues, but wave height beyond that point continues to dwindle as well until finally uh, there's no more waves. And at that point, you'll probably encounter an eddy on one side or both sides uh, of this current. You know, if you look at water, really all it's trying to do is seek the lowest point of potential gravity. In other words, get to the lowest point. Could it be a lake, Lake Powell or whatever? Ultimately, it would be the ocean. As water uh, travels downstream, like I said, grade has an effect on eddies, it also has an effect on waves uh, if you increase the grade high enough. And here, Monty explains the second way to form rapids, by obstruction. If you litter the river with a bunch of debris, be it rocks or any other form of obstruction, then you can, you know, when you have water moving through it, you're probably going to have to have a little bit of grade to go along with it. But when you have uh, water moving over rocks, I think that's pretty easy to visualize. As far as how rocks uh, make their way in a river, well, if you're in a canyon, you have cliffs. And so if rock fall occurs, that's one way. Should another way is if you have a side canyon. When you get these torrents, especially uh, in the Moab area, the Grand Canyon, just southwest or anywhere you have uh, these tributaries that uh, join up with a river, if you get a torrent that hits the thing, uh, 
uh, in severe enough cases, you can roll uh, boulders the size of houses, vehicles, et cetera, that make their way into the river. That's another way uh, in which it can happen. You can probably come up with some other ways. Oh, look at some of these side canyons. Say you're in Cataract Canyon. Say you're in the Grand Canyon. Say you're in Westwater. Any of these other canyons along the Green Colorado Corridor. Uh, you know, you can go up to Lador, et cetera. And, you know, these processes are all the same. They're pretty much the same all over the planet. The laws of physics don't change from one area to another. And so, anyway, where you have a side canyon come in, uh, which is characteristic of a lot of this, these rivers in the southwest, that's typically where you have a rapid form. And what, what happens is, as I said earlier, when you have obstruction, and one of the examples I gave was where a side where you have a side canyon, when you get a torrent, it litters the river with a, a bunch of debris from that tributary. And in severe cases, it can actually dam the river if you have a high enough flow in that tributary. In other cases, there may not be a high enough flow, and so it partially chokes off the river and I'll get to what happens in those situations in just a moment. But uh, let's just say that the river gets dammed. At this point, above the dam, upstream of the dam, the uh, water will just continue to pile up uh, behind the dam until uh, at some point it tops the dam, ultimately breaching the dam. And from there, you know, when you're sitting at the top of a situation like that, you can't see down the rapid that's formed by that by uh, virtue of the grade. Some cases you can, where it's a steeper grade, other uh, cases you can't. But one thing's for sure, up at the top of this rapid uh, that's formed uh, by this process, it's going to be rocky by virtue of the dam. Well, uh, another thing that happens is uh, what I explained with grade occurs, because on the backside of the dam, uh, that in itself creates the grade. Now you have water speeding up, and as you get down toward the tail end of the rapid, what I was talking about a moment ago, this form of hydraulics, these haystacks, these standing waves, et cetera, form by virtue of a faster current hitting water not going as fast in front of it, creating these tail waves. And so uh, generally speaking with a lot of these rapids, you get a situation where up at the top of it, it's pretty rocky. And then as you get down toward the bottom of it, these tail waves are not formed by rocks. Instead, they're formed by a form of hydraulics. As far as the constriction goes, you know, without getting into it too far, I'll just mention Bernoulli's principle. One of the aspects of Bernoulli's principle is that volume in has to equal volume out. And uh, so uh, in this case, when you're talking about a river system, well, uh, let me step back from it and uh, just ask, well, how can you have a constriction to begin with? You know, one of the things I mentioned earlier is rockfall. Well, if it doesn't completely dam the river up, if it's not a, a significant enough rockfall where it does something like that, then uh, another thing it can do is choke the river off. So in other words, you have a constriction uh, that results from it. You know, another thing, uh, you know, a tributary drainage, what I was uh, talking about earlier. You know, if you have a torrent, uh, you know, a localized thunderstorm that uh, hits that drainage, and I said in severe cases, you can actually uh, dam off of a river uh, if it's oh, a significant enough torrent. And so for this discussion, uh, as far as the constriction goes, let's just say that it chokes the river off and doesn't quite dam it. Again, uh, another way in which you can have a constriction. You guys probably been in canyon country and places and in some of these tributaries and even on the river, you can have a narrowing of the cliff walls, which that in itself can con create a constriction. So those are some examples. And however you wanna uh, look at it, when you have a situation like that where the river is constricted, you create a situation where 
water going through that constriction can't go through at a velocity sufficient to achieve volume in equaling volume out. And so something else has to happen. And above the constriction, water will just continue to pile up. And uh, at some point, again, with water at eight pounds per gallon, you're going to create enough pressure to blast water through that constriction at whatever velocity needs to occur to achieve volume in, equaling volume out. Well, kind of like what we talked about with grade, but a little different process. When you go through the constriction, because uh, water's getting blasted through it, because of the weight of the water that's uh, being impounded above the constriction, that, uh, again, creates a, a higher velocity of water. And so when the constriction subsides or when things open up, you have this fast water that's uh, charging into slower water in front of it. And again, these waves that are created are from a result of a constriction. It's a form of hydraulics. One of the rapids that's a textbook example of that in the Grand Canyon is Hermit Rapid. And if you're, if you're in the Moab area, another one that's really good about that is uh, Rapid Number 7 in Cataract. In the old days, we used to call it Pelican. Uh, I think I've heard some boatmen nowadays call it uh, Hermit on Acid. You know, those two rapids are pretty good, pretty good examples of constrictions. So in essence, you're forming another standing wave in the constriction? When the constriction subsides, you've got all this water with this built-up velocity that uh, when things open up beyond the constriction, that water is not moving as fast, but the water in the constriction gets accelerated. And as a result, uh, you have a differential in current. And when those collide, the fast water slamming into the slower water results in these waves. Right. And because of the, the big difference in current in places like Rapid Number 7 or in Hermit, it results in these really huge waves. The, uh, the bottom line is due to a constriction. And once um, the constriction is no longer, then when an area opens up and you have all this water piling into it, you kind of have, uh, I'm going to say, for lack of a better description, a miniature lake where water's not going anywhere, but you've got this water that's accelerated through the constriction. And when those two collide, again, it can result in some really big waves. Yeah. Like I say, you know, the two examples I gave in Cataract uh, and Grand Canyon uh, are uh, what can and do occur. Yeah, and so the eddy fence and the standing wave and or haystack are kind of the ways that you mentioned, you know, to dissipate energy when you've got faster moving water colliding with slower moving water. Does that mean eddies will always form in the pools? Or do you ever get eddies like alongside of an actual rapid or drop? Does that make sense? I would say yes to all of it, but you can also, and something I didn't talk about with grade, somebody usually comes along and says, well, what about that rock in the middle of the river? Well, there's an eddy right there. Are you trying to tell me that a collision of currents is causing that? No, absolutely not. That's a different process. And so uh, basically in that kind of a situation, just take a big boulder and put out in the middle of the river where you have current. Well, the water's not going to go through the boulder. Instead, it goes around it. But what happens is on the back side of that boulder, you um, have a situation where uh, as water uh, rushes around the boulder, it continues to want to run downstream. But gravity gets into that picture. It creates a void behind the boulder. And gravity says, well, that can't happen. 
Instead, uh, what happens is gravity pulls water into the void behind the boulder, and that process is what creates an eddy uh, as well. Totally different than a collision of currents. Right. Are there any, you know, specific rapids that stick out in your mind that have changed drastically? I mean, have they changed from, uh, you know, one type of rapid to another, or have they, you know, there any examples you'd like to kind of share on what you've seen happen over all those years? You know, Crystal Rapid has certainly changed over the years. You know, before the winter of 66, 67, it didn't even exist. Oh, uh, during that winter, uh, there was a record snowpack that was up on the uh, North Rim. A little bit later on, late December, uh, early January, a uh, uh, storm system uh, from the, uh, it was a tropical system, so it came from the south, southwest, and uh, I think a lot of people refer to them as pineapple expresses, but uh, it was a warm system. As a result, uh, when all this uh, warm weather along with the rain uh, hit the snowpack that was up on the North Rim, it, uh, I can't even think of a quicker way to release snowpack uh, than that kind of a situation. Right. So as a result, down the Crystal Creek drainage and the Dragon drainage, which is also another drainage that's tributary to the Crystal, uh, when those converged, uh, it resulted in a really large flow of water that came down a tributary canyon, again, the Crystal Creek drainage. When that hit the Colorado, uh, there was tons of debris uh, that were brought in. Actually, there's some ruins, that, uh, granaries that actually existed in the Crystal Creek drainage that were uh, swept away during that time. And again, this is the winter of 66, 67. But uh, the reason I even mention that is because it gave folks uh, in the world of uh, hydrology something to kind of used to figure out what the estimated flow was. You know, another thing that by those granaries and the crystal drainage being swept away tells us is that a lot of the granaries uh, in the Grand Canyon are estimated, and they vary in age, but uh, generally speaking, eight to 1,200 years old. And so what that says is this is basically a thousand-year flood. Yeah. And so uh, and when you look at the area where the granaries were, and uh, you can look at marks of where the debris was, you can kind of estimate, take a cross-sectional area. And that's one of the things needed to uh, figure out cubic feet per second. And it was estimated that Crystal Creek drainage during that time uh, got as high as 30,000 CFS. Wow. And so, um, you know, when you, when you have something like that roaring down a drainage, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of uh, significant things happen to the river itself. You know, later on that spring in 67, when uh, river runners uh, started coming down, they noticed a roar, or actually in Boucher Rapid, uh, they noticed that that rapid wasn't as long as it used to be and noticed a little bit of a lake, if you will, you know, as you approached uh, the Crystal Creek drainage. And then when they rounded the corner, they had heard a sound, uh, kind of like a jet engine, uh, in an area that they hadn't heard before. You know, they pulled over and uh, uh, took a look and uh, what they saw horrified them. And so, now that's, that's basically how... Uh, Crystal Rapid was born. Uh, you know, it's how a lot of the rapids in the Grand Canyon are uh, born yeah. is uh, from that process. Well, Monty, I appreciate you talking to Science Moab and the whole wide world of rapids and rivers. And we have a lot of listeners who really love that stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly uh, my drug of choice. This episode of Science Moab is sponsored in part by Wildland Trekking, unforgettable hiking vacations. 
To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.